We are picking up now in Daniel. We've done chapter 9. I didn't quite finish it. And there was one verse at the end which I didn't quite get my mind around. I had trouble understanding. I'll go back and deal with that. And then we'll get into, get into skip on over to chapter 11 and I'll give you an overview of the stuff in the middle. But in, in, in trying to answer the question in, in chapter 9, let's just, let's just review again, just in summary. In chapter 7, there was an everlasting kingdom that was promised. And we see, you know, just look back at chapter 7, just to review. We see a vision, and um, the vision of four beasts. And, you know, and again, those are the, they were the empires, the Roman Empire being the last. And, um, and I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near him, and then... Uh, to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, that all the peoples and all nations and lands should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. So there is an everlasting kingdom that's promised here. And that chapter ends with, uh, I'll go to chapter verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, i.e. us. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion, all dominion shall serve and obey him. And, and so uh, that is, you know, and, and, and again, I'll, I'll, I'll go back one more verse because I think it's very, very clear that from the fourth beast there was this, there were horns and then three of them were uprooted and one horn that was speaking blasphemies and all this. And then in verse 25, he shall, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and a time and a half. And, and, and for a time and times and a half time. Uh, and again, there's uh, questions on, you know, this uh, obviously was literally fulfilled in the ascension. However, there is a sense in which it is continually outfolding. And the question here is this, is this horn uh, some Roman king or general or whatever. I don't believe so. I believe it is the Antichrist that's referred to here. I believe this is this is I believe this is an epic battle. This is really Genesis three seventh that being played out before our very eyes about, you know, the, the, the serpent shall bite his heel, you know, and he shall bruise the head of the servant serpent. This is really the cosmic battle in my mind between Jesus Christ and Satan. But to me those are the two forces here. Satan manifests himself and the false worship in Jerusalem, the, uh, the, the, the fact that the people reject Jesus, the uh, uh, continued uh, 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 antichrist treatment, all of these things. Satan's still here today, okay? And so that battle is still going on. To me, this is, I think what I'm trying to get to is that the context of Daniel is an eternal context. He's dealing with an eternal kingdom. In chapter 9, he talks about an eternal righteousness. And in chapter 12, what we get to today, he's talking about an eternal life. He is talking about the great struggle in my mind between Jesus Christ and Satan, okay? And, and our involvement in that as we fall into sin, etc. Uh, God is in control. God is going to triumph throughout all this. And to me, that's the context and the way to understand this um, issue. Yes, there's a Jewish church involved. Yes, there's a destruction of Jerusalem, but it has to be put in context in my mind of the overall struggle uh, that is taking place. 
In chapter 8, we, we don't have time to get it, we didn't have time to get into that, but in verse um, in verse 11, it talks about uh, uh, Antithicus, who was a uh, Greek ruler who basically defiled the temple. Uh, this is before Jesus came, and I think this is a, he was a little horn. This little horn he was, and he's referred to as in chap- verses chapter 8, 9, and out of, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south. Well, that was because he was a king of the north, so to speak. It's ta- in chapter 8, the he goat in Iran is talking about the Greek. So this is going back in time, not about the Roman era, but about the Greek era. And the little horn is different than the little horn in the, in the Roman era. It's a different era altogether. The little horn here is a little horn... Uh, which is a Greek little horn, and as, and then Caiaphas, who was a, who basically pers- basically persecuted the Jews before Christ, he defiled the temple. Uh, that's factually uh, very very true and representative of what believe what, what chapter eight is about. And again, there is a uh, in in chapter eleven, uh, you know, this Antiochus is a, a type of the Antichrist, a type of. Of, of, the, of those who persecute the people of God. But he is a real entity, and it really existed here. And it's in the Greek era. Chapter 8, you know, chapter 7 is about an eternal kingdom that will never end, and about Christ having dominion, uh, which we'll see working out over time. Okay? And it's an everlasting kingdom. Chapter 8 is steps back in time to, to talk of... Remember, there were, four, there were four kingdoms introduced in chapter 7. The fourth, the third one was the Greek Empire, and the fourth was the Roman Empire. And this is the Greek Empire, and we see that the little horn here is different than the little horn that came out of the Roman Empire, which is totally the little horn that came out of the Roman Empire. I believe refers to the Antichrist. We can argue that. Other people have different opinions. The little horn is referred to here. It doesn't have any description. It's just a little horn. He refers to, um, you know, say type of the the little horn that's to come, so to speak that comes out of the Roman Empire. But, but the bottom line is, in chapter 11, it says, he, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the, places, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So again, uh, because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. And again, but he ultimately came to, to an end. And, um, and in verse uh, 15, and then I heard the Holy One speaking and another Holy One. Uh, and to that certain one who is speaking, how long will this vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? This doesn't use the phrase, I want to I emphasize this in my lecture today. This doesn't use the phrase abomination of desolation or abomination of the desolation. It's a different phrase here. Transgression of the desolation. I mean, you know, it, so it's, it's a different in Greek and Hebrew, it's a different set of phrases. The giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Okay, and 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 he said to me, for two thousand three hundred. So because now, when is that host? You know, that's kind of kind of a little unclear. I'm not going to get, not going to try to get into that terribly clearly. But uh, you know, and in chapter eight, it ends, and in later times, their kingdom, when their transgressions have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features. Again, most see this. We're still talking about the Greek Empire here, uh, but 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 nonetheless, uh, this could refer to uh, the, the uh, a future uh, event. Okay, but I am not going to get into trying to trying to 
interpret that. To me, that's a secondary vision, not the primary vision that we're seeing here. In chapter 9, we went over that last week. The subject is an eternal righteousness. There is an eternal kingdom in chapter 7. There is an eternal righteousness or an everlasting right. These are Daniel's words, not mine. Uh, in chapter 9, an everlasting kingdom. An everlasting righteousness. And an everlasting life. Okay, this is principally in chapter 7, this is principally in chapter 9, this is principally in chapter 12. And they outline what they're, they're talking about, Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the subject. That's the only thing that can fill that void there. That's the topic we're about. Now again, it goes back and forth about the overall kind. Remember, Daniel was well before all of these times. And in chapter 80 fills in about the Greek time. In chapter 9, we went over that last week. And, and your notes kind of have a summary there, but I'm going to go from the Bible here. Uh, you know, Daniel has a prayer for his people. The first part of chapter 9 is a prayer that Daniel has with people. A great prayer. If we want to follow example of prayer, you know, just look at this prayer. You know, I pray to the Lord my God. I'm in chapter verse 4, chapter 9, 4. I pray to the Lord my God and make confession and said, O oh Lord, how great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy to those who love him and with all those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. I could spend all day on that prayer again. We went over it last week. But but essentially, uh, he he and he actually refers to a righteousness there, a righteousness that belongs. And you know, and 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 again, we'll get into this this eternal righteousness idea. Clearly, is coming forth here. But he's praying, and, and that righteousness is of course found in Christ. It's mirrored and reflected in us. You know, um, but and his very prayer is, you know, we we like that righteousness. We fall short of that. Uh, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just go to verse sixteen. Oh Lord, according to your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are reproached all around us. And therefore, our God, hear our prayer and your servant and, and your supplications for the Lord's, Lord's cause, your, because the Lord's sake cause your faith, face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Okay. Again, the sanctuary is desolate. See that word desolate. We'll see that again a little bit later, but here it's clearly referring to, you know, they've been taken into captivity. The sanctuary is desolate. And, and uh, oh my God. Incline your ear and hear and open your eyes and see our desolations. Okay, this is plural, our desolations, okay? This is not just uh, referring to the temple, but it's referring to the fact they've been taken into captivity. The fact that, remember I said one of the key points was in, in the beginning introduction about the things of God, the, the, the things of the temple were under the control of, the, of a foreign king. It appeared to be hopeless and... Um, and city which is called by your name, and we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercy. The O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. Uh, and my, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. 
So again, the ultimate audience here are the elect, the people of God who transcend all of that, uh, who are the ones that are called by his name, okay? But nonetheless, there is an identity with the visible church, which is, which is lying prostrate and desolate. Um, then we have this prophecy. And again, I'm not going to go into this in detail this week. I'm just going to focus on the last part of it, which I, which I, was, I stumbled over because it wasn't really clear to me what it meant. I, I did a little homework on that, but I'll come back to that in a minute. And then there's the prophecy of 70 weeks. And we saw how this 70 weeks is broken down into 7 and 62 and, you know, in that final week. And they're clear that, you know, again, it's talking about the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which was accomplished in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's talking about the, the prophecy going back, Christ coming in the middle of this week. And I went through the time period and showed that the time period does really match up very well with the uh, middle part of 26 AD, which is when we believe Christ uh, was anointed. And so we have that last half, so that last week. The first half of the last week is the ministry of Jesus from his anointing to his death and resurrection. And the last half is the better. What does that last half of that week refer to? It could refer to the, uh, if you take three and a half years after that, what are some things that happened? Some things happened with the stoning of Stephen. Some argue that that, that that could even be the planning of the church in Antioch, the beginning of the Gentile church. It could be that's the meaning of that. That, 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 that week ended uh, when the Gentile church was established, and that was the meaning of that. Could very well be. I'm not going to say that's not. Somehow we take that last week as a continuing period between Christ's uh, death and resurrection to the end of the world. There's arguments for that as well. I'm not going to be dogmatic, but each one of those both make some sense. Uh, you know, and then it goes into verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness. Again, the everlasting righteousness, the theme of this chapter, to seal up your visions and prophecy and to anoint the Most High. So the central theme is an everlasting righteousness. We saw that clearly in his prayer. We see that now echoed in this prophecy of an everlasting righteousness. All six of those things were completely fulfilled in the coming death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, okay? And, and that was accomplished. The prophecy of him coming was fulfilled. That was all done and accomplished uh, during that 70-week period of time. Therefore, understand that going forth the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks. And I'm not, I've already gone through it. I'm not going to get into that time period again. I'm going to go to verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And for the people of the prince to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now again, that most likely, and most, uh, most commentaries, and I myself agree, that's probably talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, very clearly. Uh, the people of the prince to come, probably talk about the Roman people, who were that last empire that was talking of earlier, it certainly makes sense. And the prince being an, an individual, not the leader of, but an example of, which clearly Titus was at the time, to come and, and, and destroy the temple. He later became emperor. Uh, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, which was a prophecy, no doubt about it. The destruction of Jerusalem took place there. Uh, it's almost beyond dispute. I won't even argue it, okay? And the end of... and the, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. The desolations are determined. Okay, now what that means is a little bit debatable. Some take that to be about 
the desolation of, of, of Israel. I mean, you can make that argument fairly clearly from the, the, the structures and the prayer that was praying about the desolation that was taking place on his people. Notice desolation, the war of desolation is plural. Not desolation, but plural. There, there is multiple desolations that are taking place here. It's not a single desolation, but there is desolations. There is a pouring out, a, 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 a suffering of the people of God. And then you get into this last verse that I want to go over again in a little bit more detail because I had a little trouble. Trans- I, the last section was giving me trouble. I, and, and again, uh, let's get, go over it and try to make sense out of it. Then, then he, he being, now does that refer to the prince or does that he refer to Jesus Christ, the one who did those sacrifices? I think it refers to Jesus Christ who, who, who made those, who accomplished those things. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay. Well, that just can't fit the Roman prince. It's not talking about the Roman prince. I think most commentaries, or at least Reformed, uh, believe that to be speaking, that he to be Jesus Christ, that covenant confirmed with many to be us even today. There, there are two other interpretations of this that are necessary to kind of lay out there so people can get it. Some who see this as all about the fall of Jerusalem see that many to be the many Jews. There was a covenant made with the many Jews that this was a covenant with the Jewish people, okay? A covenant made for many. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Maybe somebody can explain that to me. I don't believe that's the right interpretation. I believe this covenant with many with us, us and that one week is continued on that throughout all time. That could be your argument. He made a covenant with many for Jews and that end of that one week was the coming of the Gentiles, that's possibly true. But what was this covenant? Why did, what, what, what's the sense of this covenant? The only way I can say the idea of the covenant and the general understanding of the covenant, the prayer for God's covenant, everything refers to the covenant of grace. That's the most logical meaning of So there's, there's three, three interpretations. One of them is the one I take, which is this talking about Jesus Christ, the many or all the Christians, including us today, the covenant was confirmed. In the middle of the week, he brought an end to sacrifice and offering. That middle of the week is the same thing as the date when he brought those six things earlier for 70 weeks to determine your people, da-da-da-da. A finished church transgression. That's talking about Jesus Christ. So, so that's one reading. The second reading is this is talking about a covenant with many, which is with the Jewish people. Now, when did he do it? Who was the representative? How did he accomplish it? What was the sacrifice? I don't get how that can be with the Jewish people, but some who, who insist that this is all about the fall of Jerusalem to see it that way, including Ken Gentry. I don't see it that way. The third avenue is what, how the dispensationalists take it. Okay, now this is a dispensational gold mine to read in all kinds of directions because the wording is a little unclear here. They take this to be a future Antichrist who will come and uh, set up a kingdom Okay, and and require the war, and false worship and all of this kind of stuff and two thousand years and the rapture and I, I'm not going to go there. Okay, I don't believe I believe that's a nonsensical reading. I don't believe that's what this is about. It doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit the story of an everlasting righteousness. It doesn't fit the rest of the scripture. It just doesn't fit. It's just an invention to follow a fallacy and a, a dream about an eternal, uh, uh, you know, this this future kingdom to come. Now, I believe there's an Antichrist, don't get me wrong, it's not my point, but I don't believe this Antichrist is going to come in this type of way uh, in, in, in this sense. Okay, so 
So anyway, I go back, and the first part of chapter 27, as I said last week, is about, in my mind, about the covenant that Jesus Christ confirmed with us through his death and sacrifice. He brought an end to sacrifice and offering. And that's an important context. You've got to get that in your mind here before you move forward. That end to sacrifice and offering, that then makes the temple an abomination. The, the, the offerings that were offered, the sacrifices that were continued in the temple were an abomination in that sense, okay? Because they were, basically they were re-sacrificing Jesus, killing Jesus Christ over and over again, much like the Catholic Church does in their mass, uh, offering up the host in, 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 this, in this sense. So to me, I don't see that, you know, again, I'm, I gave you my reason for my reading. So before I move on to the last part of that, any discussion on the first part of that chapter? Anybody, anybody argue with me or want to argue for another reading, let's talk about that here. But I'm giving you my opinion, and I think that's consistent with Calvin, and I think that's consistent with Young and most evangelical scholars. I don't. I agree with you. It's just interesting to me, particularly on the dispensational side of that spectrum, you know, as opposed to the preterist side. But the dispensational side is what we mostly encounter yes. when we talk to Christians, yeah. other fellow Christians. Right. And if I don't know, I've explained it to dispensationalists that I've talked to just the way you did that mm -hmm. the sacrifices ended. You can take them to Hebrews. Right. Jesus is the once and for all right. sacrifice. Right. There's no more mm -hmm. sacrifice to come. And it just makes me wonder how. I don't know. I, it's so clear and so plain. But I think we have a very mystical view of prophecy that we, you know, they're holding on to something, they're clinging to some, you know, framework that just mm -hmm. isn't in the text. And I think it really goes back to how we read our Bibles, what we understand what the Bible is. It's not this, you know, mystical book. It is a mystical book in a certain sense, but it's not this right. mystery book that we have to, you know, unlock the keys of the Bible. You know, they have all the shows on the History Channel on, you know unlocking the keys of the Bible like there's this you know the Bible's bound up with these secrets and I don't know I just I, it's encouraging to me and I think I'm just voicing to encourage others that when you talk to somebody who holds these views which you will because I mean that's the majority position unfortunately you just tell them Jesus is the final sacrifice right there is Amen. no sacrifice exactly come. right there is no you right. know we're not looking forward to a reinstitution right. that the old covenant Economy was was wonderful, right. and glorious, and great. It was all of grace and mercy, but Jesus is its fulfillment, and God isn't going to go back to a lesser mode. No, no, you know, so you know, there's so much fear wrapped up. I just took. I yeah, I don't see how they get. The point I want to come, come at is that if you import your ideas into this, you're going to come up with all sorts of things. And, and the issue really is, you know, that abomination, uh, you know, where it comes from, he shall curb a couple of many. To me, that I think that clearly refers to Jesus Christ. I think most, most Reformed commentaries agree with that. And, and that makes then the temple sacrifices that were continuing to take place an abomination. No doubt about it. I won't argue that. That's very, that's very clear logic, okay? But that's not the only abomination. Okay, so, so the question is, what do these words mean? And I did a little work search, and I'll share it with you on how I came up, you know, and I think it's helpful in trying to understand when Jesus Christ refers to the abomination of the desolation in Matthew and in Mark, and in Luke, 
it just refers to the desolation. Okay, so okay, but so we don't make too much of the words. But what is he referring to? Is he referring to Antiochus? Thank you, Antiochus. Is he? No, I don't believe so. Is he referring to uh, the temple? Could be. Okay. Or is he referring to something else? So that's the question. What is the referent of the abomination of desolation? Okay, that's, that's, what I want, that's what I want to focus on, trying to understand who are the actors? Who is the actor here? Who is the subject? Who, it's a, to understand English, you have to understand who is the subject, who is the predicate, what is that, who are the people involved? Okay, what is the topic about? And so I think looking at the, that the language informs us uh, into that. So now... I fully admit that Jesus Christ referred to this, according to both Matthew and Mark, as using the phrase, the abomination of desolation, singular abomination of the desolation. I want to say the desolation. There's an article between abomination and desolation to emphasize the desolation. Okay. So the question is, what is the desolation that he is referring to? Okay, it's not just abomination of desolation, but the desolation, okay? Now, the, I want to point out that the use of that article in, 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 in several places, Daniel talks about language about similar to abomination, sacrifices, desolation. One of them is in chapter 8, which is about Antiochus, and that doesn't use the phrase abomination of desolation or the phrase abomination of desolations. It uses the phrases about the ending of sacrifices about the main idea. So clearly it's not, that phrase does not refer to more. That phrase, abomination of the desolation, shows up twice again. Abomination of desolation. One of them is in chapter 11. We're going to get to that in a minute. Bear with me, humor me, bear with me. But in that, in that, in the Greek Septuagint version of that uh, translation, it is abomination of desolation, okay? And 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 that's and what's the subject we're talking about there? We'll get to that when we get there. Chapter twelve, it shows up again. The phrase abomination of the desolation, the exact Greek phrase that Jesus is using in Matthew and Mark, does not show up in chapter nine. It does not show up in chapter eight. It does not show up in chapter eleven. It, it, the abomination of desolation shows up in chapter. And verse tw chapter 12 is where the phrase the abomination of the desolation shows up. I'll repeat that. The phrase Jesus uses does not show up in chapter 9, does not show up in chapter 8, does not show up in chapter 11, but shows up in chapter. We'll get to chapter 12 in a little bit. God willing, that's about the everlasting life. Okay, chapter 12. Okay. And, 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 and to me, that's about the things that are after the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll explain to you why I believe that, and I'll bring my reference uh, Mr. Calvin here. Okay? I could argue, we argue any person, but I think he makes a very strong case that the chapter 12 is about the end times from Jesus Christ coming, the preaching of the gospel, to the end of the world. And that is what the phrase abomination of the desolation in Greek, that, that phrase shows up only in chapter 12. Abomination of desolation shows up in chapter 11. We'll get into that in a minute. But the desolation, that same exact phrase shows up. 
But what, what is the phrase that's used in chapter 9? Let's go back to chapter 9. What is the phrase that's used in chapter 9? No, okay, let me go to the second part of the sentence where, where it's really hard to understand. And let me refer you to my notes here. Go to page 2 of my notes. And I presented to you in the middle of that page the NIV and the ESV translation of the Hebrew. Uh, you know, and, and the, first of all, I want to make a point that in chapter 9, the phrase abomination of desolation does not show up. Let me repeat that. The phrase abomination of desolation, the abomination of the desolations, neither of those phrases show up. The word desolation shows up. The word abomination shows up. Don't argue that, okay? But they're used in different senses. In chapter 9, it, the wing of the abomination. So let me just say, both the NIV and the King James, uh, the ESV and King James agree, and all commentary. Actually, this is the Greek, this is the actual Hebrew language. The wing on the wing. What is the wing? We're getting to that. We've talked about it the last week, and I'll follow up on that. But that's singular, feminine singular, wing. The abominations. Okay, that's plural. It's not an abomination of desolation, it's abominations. Okay? It is plural, okay? It is talking about, in my mind, the continual work of Satan in his destruction of the people of God. Is you know, to me, let's go back in chapter 9. Let's review the players. There was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who came and did those six things, brought an end to sacrifice. There was a prince who came and destroyed Jerusalem. Now the question is, does that prince, is this verse, are these verses right here, and in, 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 in parallelism, the first part of chapter 27 is about Jesus Christ, is the second part of 27 about this prince? Or is it about an enemy who holds himself up as equal to Jesus Christ? Is it about the Antichrist? I believe it's about the leader, okay? And I'll give you more argument. This is abominations. It is not singular, it is plural. The wing of the abomination is a very, very cryptic phrase. Some who follow the preterist, what I mean by the preterist camp, is those who believe that all of the scripture and Revelation, Matthew 20, every bit of it was completed to fall of Jerusalem. That's their argument. And, and so you don't need to look for any future referent in prophecy in the New Testament. It's all done to fall of Jerusalem. I don't believe that. I believe, and, and the argument is, well, it makes sense because this is when prophecy ceased. Well, no, prophecy ceased when the last... New Testament wrote, writer wrote the last word of the New Testament. I find no evidence that was in Jerusalem. There is evidence that it might have been before the fall of Jerusalem or after the fall of Jerusalem. I believe it was after because I believe it's where John wrote Revelation, but certainly was not at the fall of Jerusalem. So I don't believe there's any argument that falls into that. But anyway, I don't want to get lost in argument. The point I'm getting at is let's, let's go to the second part of chapter 27. To me, it's mathematically parallel uh, uh, to Satan is the actor here. Okay. Now, if we go back to uh, another time, remember when Satan brought Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and offered him the whole world if he would lay down, if he would bow down and worship him, which is what the Antichrist wants us to do on the very pinnacle of the temple. Okay. Oh, you know, so so that's, the, that's the metaphor that's being used. That wing of the abomination, that wing of the, abom the abomination was taking place inside a, an abomination. I mean, not the abomination. The question is, is it D or A? Certainly abominations were taking place inside the temple because Jesus Christ had already died. Sacrifice. I'm not arguing that. The temple is clearly a house of abomination at that point in time because the offering continued to sacrifice. They didn't get it. 
that, that continuing sacrifices were an abomination. That's not an argument. So, the, so we're talking about the, the figure that's illustrated here is the temple. Now we're we talking about the literal temple. What does it mean here? And here it, it clearly refers to the practical referred. Probably most commentaries believe that wing of the abominations is talking about the temple itself. I would argue, though, that the, that the plural there kind of gives you a sense to where this is maybe an illustration of, a type of, this is continuing struggle with Jesus and the people of the church. I'll take that latter view and I'll explain why it's because of the rest of this. The wing of the abominations. It doesn't have the words or not, the abomination of desolation. So, so clearly Jesus Christ is not referring specifically to that. Okay. That, that's, if it goes back to Daniel, he says that Daniel mentioned, he's talking about the, the, the ultimate end in, in certainly nine. He could be referring, using that word loosely. We, don't, we could argue that. But anyway, I want to get that in context here. The wing of the abomination shall be one. I'm going to read the King James first. Shall be one who makes desolate. Let's go to the ESV. Shall come one who makes desolate. Both of them say essentially the same thing. That there shall be one who comes and makes desolate. Okay. Now, who is that one they're referring to? Clearly, the prince did come and make desolate. And he made desolate to the house of the mama. So clearly, there is a very logical reading for saying that way. So I'm not arguing that. Okay. Certainly, I, I can't say that that's, that's, that's an unscriptural argument to see this as exclusively about the temple. It certainly could be, because are, who is the actor? It, who is the actor? Is it the prince, or is it Satan himself prefigured by looking at the broader context of Scripture? The, uh, to me, the interpretation comes in the last part of that verse. And notice the King James and the ESV are different. Believe me, I am as strong a new King James advocate as you can find. Okay. I, I am died in the wool, new King James, uh, you know, to end the world. I actually, I follow... A, a sense of, of even the King James has got some wrong translations because to me I look at that majority text uh, as the ultimate arbiter of where the New Testament is. I think that is where reality is. I don't believe the argument that just because some scriptures were found in a desert where, where things survive much better compared to a lush climate like Jerusalem where there's lots of trees, okay, and, it's, and things not going to survive very well. There's enough humidity to destroy paper in a very short period of time, or, in, or particularly in France or in Syria and more cultivated regions of the world, just because some text survived, that we believe those are the oldest texts, I don't believe it. I think that you look at the Old Testament, you'll see, uh, look at the New Testament, look at the majority, that you'll see that there's evidence for these minority readings of all of these things. I believe it was Jerome, I'd have to go back and check, and he talked about Scripture, uh, no, it was... Uh, Come to me in a minute. It wasn't your own, but it was... Uh... Anyway, one of the early church fathers talked about the scriptures being sent to the four winds. I believe that, you know, there were, there were, you know, there were four kind of... The scripture was sent. There were, there were some alterations in four different directions. You can geographically plot those by looking at the King James and looking at, looking at the, the Greek following its origin and time. And I, 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 that's another Sunday school lesson, another lecture altogether. I can bring in a stack of books I have that talk about that issue... But, but geographically, the, 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 there is an Egypt version of the text. You know, there's a Syrian version of the text, uh, etc. So there are the, so the, the four directions. There are versions. Of, so which is right? I believe that underlying them is a true text. Question is, I believe it's what we find in the base of the king. That's my opinion. I'm not going, I, I'm, I, I can't tell you you've got to take that literally. But I'm a little hesitant on this neutral. But sometimes they're right. 
Sometimes I think here they're right. So what are, what are they right about? question is, who is the object of this wrath being poured out? It makes a big difference in how you hold this. In the King James, the wrath is poured out on the desolate. Now, who are the desolate? It, you know, to me, that would, that, if you read it that way, that's pro- that could be, it could, you could interpret like that as the church in a continuing sense, truly so. But you could also make that as a strong argument for the desolate being the, the church, okay, and the Jewish church, the desolate. Their temple was destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. They, 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 were, in a, they were in a serious, continued abomination, desolation, et cetera. Certainly could be. I'm not going to say that's wrong. I don't believe that's the best reading. I believe the ESV has it right here. They read that last word, which is a participle which is a qual participle, an active participle, okay? And a participle can be interpreted in, in transition, you know, as uh, usually interpreted with, the, with the, adding the ing to it, like a, a, a desolating, okay? And then often it can have a substantive. Now, a participle is a virgil, verbal adjective, but it can be used as a noun, okay? Now, first of all, when I got out of college, I didn't understand that simple point in English. Okay, it wasn't until it took me years to get those simple rules of English understood there. But a participle can be a noun, and often is a noun, and most frequently is translated as a noun by adding the phrase "the one who," the one abominating. Okay, so taking that logic, the ESV translates this as the object of this wrath is the desolator. Okay? Now, you could argue, well, the desolator could be the prince, so maybe that, that's not conclusive of a non-read. It could be. But I argue the desolator, I argue the bigger picture. I believe this is a cause, this is an everlasting struggle. I believe the main players are Jesus Christ and Satan through the Antichrist, and I believe that is what's going on here. I believe this is a cosmic battle. This is and and that the and that this is basically recapitulating the whole story of chapter nine, in terms of a broader meaning. Yes, there was real reality in the destruction of the abomination that took place in Jerusalem, but I don't believe that that taps the full meaning of this. And yes, there probably was wrath poured out on the desolator. It could have been the prince. For certainly, certainly, wrath could be talked about on on Titus Vespasian. Could certainly could be talked in that direction. But I think, I think that I would argue that there's also a real sense in which that could be referring to a continued persecution of the church. And when we get to chapter 12, I think that becomes the conclusive reading. That you've got to look at this, in my mind, as, as from that everlasting context. So, I repeat, chapter 8, which talks about Antiochus and the sacrifice during the Greek era, that doesn't have the word abomination of desolation. Chapter 11, which we'll get into in a minute, God willing, has the word abomination of desolation. Chapter 12 has the word abomination of the desolation. So what is chapter 12 about? So, so that to me is sort of conclusive here. What, what, when Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation, he's talking about the temple. But is that all that he's talking about? I would argue, first of all, no, it's not all he's talking about. I would argue that when, you, when I read Matthew 24... And, 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 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, I read it as talking about, when it refers to Daniel, 
Yes, the temple is part of that. But I don't see that as the main subject. I see the main subject being an everlasting kingdom, everlasting life. I see that as the main subject. Yes, it's about the temple. The temple is an example and a type of defection against God. Yes, in a real sense. But is that the main subject? Is that exclusively what Jesus is referring to? I don't believe so, in my opinion. And, and I think that's the opinion of most of the people in the Reformation, certainly in the people who wrote our confession. They actually thought the Pope was the Antichrist. Okay, I could argue that. And at one time, actually, but I don't believe that. I think he's a type of the Antichrist. I don't think he... I think Satan is the ultimate driver behind the Antichrist. I think the Antichrist is merely those who are following Satan, particularly in false worship in the church. That's very simply my definition of an Antichrist, all right? In a broader sense, it isn't an individual, it's a group of individuals over time who portray this character. That's my opinion. Okay, we can argue that. It's not, I don't give that as a, as a factual proof. I just give you that. So that's what makes sense to me. Because I read this as a cosmic battle. I see this as a struggle there. I see this abominations. Yes, yes, there were more than one abomination in Israel. I could argue, could that apply? Yes, it could. Okay, so I might say that's a, that, that by itself is not a reading which would read me in this direction. My argument is when you look at the broader context of Daniel, everlasting kingdom, everlasting, everlasting, and you get to chapter 12, this then becomes more conclusive. So anyway, but the more I move on and go to chapter, chapter 12, I want to just point out in chapter 17 of Revelation, a woman was arrayed with purple scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So when we get to Revelation, this word abominations, to me, I read that as referring to the abominations of the false church, of the people who are following the Antichrist. I see that very clearly as that. Uh, some who are the preachers see everything in Revelation except chapter 21 and 22 about the fall of Jerusalem. I can't fathom that, but that's what they see. And, and they would see this as being about the abomination of the Jewish people. And somehow the Thessalonians and the people in Ephesus had some real vital interest in, and somehow were personally affected by the fall of I just don't get the context. I see Revelation about us, about the church. Yes, it's illustrated by the Jewish people. Yes, it's illustrated by the early church. But again, that's another day and another dollar. I have to put that off building my argument on when was Revelation written before or after the fall of Jerusalem. Another topic, another day. But let's stay here on this topic now. Okay. I'm, I, so what my argument is, in summary is, I cannot rule out that these are referring to the fall of Jerusalem exclusively. That certainly is a legitimate, a, a, uh, it's certainly within the ambiguity of the words, in the context, certainly could very well be what they mean. I personally don't think so. So I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying I don't think that's the best understanding. I think it has to be looked at in a broader sense. Before I move on to chapter 11 and 12, I don't have much time for 10. Anybody, any discussion so far? Bo and I are over here uh, running the quick math. <laughs> <laughs> feel like uh, stockbrokers. Uh, so... I think I agree with you. I'm going to articulate what I think I'm woven together. Okay. That chapter 27 is talking about... Chapter 27. Or verse 27, chapter 9. Right, right. Yes. Uh, is talking about us. So the covenant with many is the Gentiles. Okay. Right? That week uh, is figurative. So we're talking about a period of time that is still ongoing. 
-hmm. The midweek reference would be the cross. Right, right. And then he is Christ, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, which he did on the cross. The right. The veil was torn. Right. Okay. And on the wing of abominations, so just my little, I, I don't remember where I read this, or some other class we're working through this, but there are some who take wing of abomination as the location of the cross, being outside of the temple. Okay, I've not heard of that, but okay, know, all right. Just kind of that, right. the way that wing is used in Hebrew, it, right. it can be a, an extent, extremity, place. right? Yeah, gotcha. Right. Okay. So if abominations is then the temple, right? Mm -hmm. So where this takes place is outside of the temple, and then the one who makes desolate is Christ, making that system desolate or emptying it of its meaning, and then it even will be to the consummation. So one day it will be poured out on the desolate, right. which then would be what? What do we? The question is, is that the, the desolate or the desolator? Right, so then that, yeah, that's right. So then the desolate really is the desolator. I looked that up, but yeah, you're right. That's a, it's a person, it's a definite, it's a noun, first of all, it's not a verb, it's a noun, so it's not one name. It's probably not Christ. Right. The desolator is, yeah, is somebody else. Right. Okay. Not the same as the he. Right, right, right. He is the one who is pouring out on the desolator, whoever. Right, right. right. Christ is the one pouring out wrath on the desolate, the, either the desolate or the desolator, depending upon how yeah. you read the part of symbol, which could be read either way. Right, right. Okay. So we track, we're tracking. We're tracking. Oh, okay, all right. Okay. I, I, won't, I won't argue that there's a, lot, there's a lot of dispute there, but let me in this short period of time lay out chapter 12 argument, which builds on this case. Okay, let me, let me lay that out. So my points in summary are. The phrase in Matthew and Mark, abomination of the desolation with the article, only shows up in Daniel in chapter 12. It shows Abomination of desolation shows up in chapter 11. The phrase abominations and sacrifices show up in chapter 8, and Antiochus clearly talking about that. The words abomination and desolation show up, but not in a linked common phrase, abomination of desolation. But those ideas are certainly there in chapter 9, no doubt about it. But... So, so when Christ used the phrase abomination, what's he referring to? To me, I see the immediate referring to chapter 12 because that's where the Greek phrase. Now again, is this Hebrew or Greek? We could argue that. What was it written in Aramaic Greek? I'm not going to get in that argument. Okay, I'm just saying that the article that was used here specifically is in chapter 12, not here. It's a different, the abominations that spoke, abomination, the abomination of desolation is singular. Okay? The abominations is plural used here. Now, I'm not going to say these things by themselves. None of these by themselves are conclusive. I'm just trying to lay these out as elements in an argument. So let me move on. In the short period of time i got left here. I am going to blow away chapter 10. Not that it's not important, not that we can't be there, but we just, we just can't get it. But prophecies concerning Persia and Greece, again, I see this as, yes, Jesus Christ is clearly there, uh, you know, the latter days is clearly there, touch my lips. We could argue that, and perhaps if I could dive into chapter 12 and get my mind around it, maybe it would be additional, to chapter 10, it would be additional evidence here. But allow me to, to, to basically say, I don't fully understand how that came, I don't fully understand the meaning, I don't think it's the main point. It certainly isn't where these words, everlasting king, rights, and life show up. So I'm putting off chapter 10, but, I, but I, in my opinion, Calvin and... and um, and, and, and both Calvin and Jung, who are the commentaries I use, try to kind of apply this to the Greek era 
And then he said, chapter, chapter 10, verse 20. And then he said, do you not know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight the princes of Persia when I have gone forth. Indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you that it is noted in the scripture truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Okay. I don't think this chapter is about the fall of Jerusalem nor about the continued persecution of the people of God uh, you know, other than an example or illustration of that. It's going back, it's, it's basically a sandwich for chapter 9. Chapter 9 is in a sandwich of chapter 8 and 10. Chapter 8 and 10 are speaking of Antiochus, the Greek framework, and maybe there's some meaning in having it framed in that. I see the meaning being that these are types and illustrations of the false worship and the implications and destruction of the people of God. That's how I read it. Others can read it differently, but I'm not going to get lost in chapter 10. I have addressed it, however. Chapter 11. We could spend months addressing chapter 11. I'm going to divide it in two parts. Just as, you know, I think, I think both Calvin and Jung would agree on this. That from verses 11 through, through 35, it's talking about a war between the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north is probably Antiochus, the king of the south. Is or the enemies of Antiochus? Okay, could be Egypt, other places. People could debate what that means, but I believe, and 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 Calvin goes into great detail, explaining how through chapter thirty-five, of chapter eleven, verse thirty-one through thirty-five, he sees that applying to Antiochus and the Greek period time. Now I'm just quoting Calvin here. I'm, I'm just saying I don't. I'm not. I'm not a great enough scholar of history to understand that. I believe Calvin's probably right. That refers to that period of time. However, Calvin is totally lost, doesn't have any idea what chapters, what verses 35 in the chapter mean. And, 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 and uh, Jung points out that no commentator has ever found any way to fully understand what chapter, the rest of chapter 11 is about. What does it refer to? Okay, it, 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 certainly debatable. Okay, but let's pick up in chapter, chapter 11, verse 36. Now again, I go back, before I get to 36, I go back to a phrase in verse 31, and the forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there an abomination of desolation. That abomination of desolation, it's not the abomination of the desolation, but an abomination of desolation, it has similar language to the language used in chapter 8, but doesn't use the, chapter eight doesn't use the word abomination. It uses the words of sacrifice and abomination. They use those words together, but that, but it's clearly talking about someone taking. It's not about Christ. I don't believe that's talking about Antiochus and, and the work he did, and, and that's what Calvin thinks, and that's what most Reformed commentators think. So I, if you want to debate that, you can. But I'm saying read Calvin and Young, and and they'll they'll agree with you. They'll they'll say this is about this is basically recapitulating this. Okay. So the lot just in summary. Antiochus is a main actor here, no doubt about it. Most of chapter 8, most of chapter 10, and the first part of chapter 11 is about that sacrifice. Not because that was what chapter, not because that's what Daniel's about. Daniel's about this, but because that is a type of the desolation and persecution that will take place on the people of God. That's why that's important. Verse 36. I don't have time. I wish I did to get into, into the rest of 36. I'll just glance over it because we've got to get to chapter 12 here. I, I want to get to chapter 12. 
We're not going to make chapter 12. Okay, all right. Let me give it for discussion. Okay, so my point is, I've got my notes here. Let's argue. Let's have a good good old-fashioned argument here. The question is, I'll just give you the brush of my argument here. Where, where the abomination of, des- of desolation shows up in chapter nine, uh, chapter eleven, is clearly about Antiochus, just as chapter eight is. The the chapter, the rest of chapter thirty six is about, to me, some additional struggles. The king of the north, young, Calvin doesn't have it. Calvin just basically says he's clueless. He doesn't, he doesn't know what that's about. Uh, young Young says most people don't. Nobody's ever been able to translate this. It's probably about the entering of the glorious land. This is probably about the end days, but I can't be definitive about that. I don't really know for sure. Not my main point. Some of the same language shows up in Second Thessalonians two eight. I think I think it sort of sort of can can be applied there. But chapter twelve, very simply, is at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who shall shall who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be trouble. Uh, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, never was a nation, even until the time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who found written in the book, okay, da da da. Every, and it talks about everlasting life being condemned. Calvin, in chapter twelve, is unequivocal. Chapter twelve is about the elect. Chapter twelve is about the continual persecution of the elect. Okay, chapter twelve is about that. That's what chapter twelve is about. Because he's talking about this eternal life. Daniel is about an eternal kingdom, an eternal righteousness, an eternal life. That's the main subject. That's the main subject. Yes, the fall of Jerusalem is part of it. But that is not the main idea. That is not the main subject. That is certainly a a metaphor and a figure that has great weight and carries forward. And then in in verse 11, And at that time the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be so many days. Now, what are those days? Calvin sees that as a definite period. We'll pick that up next week. Got my notes. We can talk about it. But that's the question. Let's look at Daniel in context. What is Daniel talking about? How do we put that in context? How do we get it there? I'm done. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, help us to understand Daniel. Help us to understand your word and your prophecy and its meaning to us today. Lord, we confess, uh, despite our opinions, despite the vehemency of our opinions, and even myself, I fully confess, Lord, we're, we're at a loss to fully understand your word and its meaning Lord, you meant it to be that way. Lord, help us to keep it vitally there as open and active and and, and something that's being realized. Lord, we lift this up as a prayer for your glory and your name. In Jesus' name, amen.